And the way a brand is different from marketing is a brand shapes and marketing sells. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Bayat Bodenbacher. Bayat is co-founder and chief creative officer at Loyal Casper. Perhaps you've seen his work for Peacock, Paramount+, Plus, MTV, ESPN, Comedy Central, CNN Originals, and many more all over the entertainment and media space. Originally from Switzerland, Bayat is a graduate of Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. He co-founded New York-based entertainment branding agency Loyal Casper with business partner David Herbrook in 2003. His new book, out in July 2022, available for pre-order now, is called Somewhere Yes, The Search for Belonging in a World Shaped by Branding. Bayat is someone who deeply questions what branding is and the social problems it's caused. He believes the tools of branding have the capacity to help us recover from our recent dystopian trajectory, as equally as they had the power to cause it. It's a refreshing take and an eye-opening perspective. Here's Bayat. Hi, my name is Bayat. Um, I live in Brooklyn, New York. I am the chief creative officer and co-founder of Loyal Casper, which has turned into a branding agency. And I do it because I love design and I love figuring out the simplest and clearest way to communicate something. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I appreciate that. Simple and clear communication. It's just more important than ever. But before we get into that, let's go back to the beginning. I'd love to hear about your formative years I grew up in Switzerland in a small village um, about an hour and a half northeast of Zurich. Um, there's a lake called Lake Constance that's sort of where Switzerland, Austria, and Germany meet. Our town was a little bit up the hill from there. I'm the oldest of four siblings. I have two brothers and a sister. My father was a surgeon and my mother was an artist. There was a very interesting dynamic in my household ever since I remember. The sort of messiness, if you will, of the artistic household and then the sort of precision of uh, the medical part of my family, the surgeon. Everything needed to happen for a reason. You do everything with a purpose. 
uh, on one hand, and then on the other hand, it was very, let's see what happens. I, I can see how that might be. As a surgeon, you can't really, yeah, everything has to be premeditated. You can't like get in there and think, um, oh, I'll figure this out after I open her up. You know what's super interesting, though, is that, that actually, at least my father said that there's a good amount of creativity in that too, right? Because you need to have a roadmap, right? Of like, okay, once once I open this body up, there's a roadmap. But because everybody is different, everything is going to be arranged a little bit differently. You need to be able to think on your feet and actually be very creative in terms of, you know, how you approach the final solution. You know what the solution needs to be. I need to have a screw in this particular bone and a plate here. But how you get there is always a little bit different. That makes perfect sense to me. It's a, it's a bit similar in like home renovation. Once you like open up an old home, you don't know what you're going to find, but exactly. you have to be able to deal with any number of circumstances in order to get to the solution 100%. without collapsing the house. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. that's a kind of a nice mix. Where were you in the birth order? I'm the oldest. Did you feel extra responsibility as the oldest? I did for sure. Not sort of like when I was super young, but definitely in my teenage years, I definitely felt the burden to a certain degree um, of being the oldest, um, which then sort of collided with, you know, me leaving first the house and then secondly, leaving the country. There was a lot of internal conflict because I felt like I was responsible, but I wasn't there. I'd love to unpack that a little bit. The responsibility that you felt, was that a kind of like caretaking responsibility for your younger siblings or was that a like a role model responsibility where were you feeling your internal conflict um i think a number of those things i think what happened during that time is is my parents uh, marriage was falling apart so i felt like i was uh leaving my siblings sort of to, to deal with the ramifications of that without physically being there uh, which was hard or like feeling as the oldest feeling responsible you know if that family unit sort of falls apart who is going to be responsible for the rest of the of the tribe if you will how would you describe your your sensitivity level like were you also kind of processing both your your parents sorrow yeah for sure what i've come to sort of learn about myself is that i feel like i have a pretty big sensor you know almost like a camera and it's sort of an HD sensor. I sort of take in a lot of information. I don't always know what to do with it, but I record a lot of it. So I definitely, there was definitely a good amount of kind of processing sorrow, pain from afar, which wasn't always easy. Yeah, I relate to that. So let's kind of back up a little bit in the childhood years with your mom as an artist and your dad as a surgeon, it does sound like you had a nice sort of mix of possibly encouraging your creative side as well as your analytical side. Would that characterize your household? Yes. And then what were you finding was like really driving your curiosity and where were you pulled? There's so much to unpack here. And, and, I, and I say that because this sort of dynamic played out in sort of the larger context of Switzerland, which is interesting, meaning I, I don't want to say that 
necessarily that Switzerland is sort of restrictive in certain ways, but at the same time, you know, there are kind of certain expectations of how you're supposed to live your life and the kind of things you should be interested in. But within that, in my household, my mother was always amazingly supportive of the creative process. She had a studio, um, you know, where she, the older we, we got, the more time she would spend in there. And it was always come in and play. There's no wrong solutions. There's no wrong questions. You try and you see what happens. Oh, that's nice to kind of have that unboundedness. It was amazing. And I think then for my father, it's much more analytical in the sense that now that I think back, <laughs> there definitely is sort of try anything you want on one hand. And then on the other side, it's sort of like, but why are you trying this particular thing? <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I definitely feel like they're both kind of aspects that were imprinted on me from early on, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. The why are you trying is is kind of sounds like it might be coming from a place of wanting you to sort of question what it is that appeals to you about what you're trying so that you can know is this something that you like or don't like or do or don't want to do. It's not always obvious, but I do think we've as we grow, we we learn to value the process of learning what we don't like is just as important as figuring out what we do like and what we are good at. Oh, 100%. You know, in many ways, I think both of those sort of aspects, consciously or unconsciously, have definitely led me to sort of where I am today and the kind of work that I do, because I definitely feel like you need both of those aspects. There needs to be a room for play. But at the end of the day, you also need to be able to rationalize your decisions and, and you know, fight for them if you believe in them. Yes. Sounds like things got a little turbulent in your adolescence. And adolescence is turbulent to begin with. I mean, just because we're, we're bursting through the shell of our youth into the sort of weird, flimsy, <laughs> new territory of adulthood. How were you sort of expressing your creativity and finding your direction while you were also kind of, you know, processing your parents' relationship and your responsibilities to your siblings? As far as I can remember, I've always taken advantage of, of my mother's playground, if you will. So, and she encouraged us from an early age, you know, to be in there in the studio with her. So that was a big aspect. So I've always kind of felt very comfortable sort of asking creative questions and also early on realizing, accepting failure, right? Because a lot of the creative process is some things work and some things don't, and you have to try them to figure out what works and what doesn't. Yeah. So, you know, being very comfortable with failure and then just keep trying until you you know, find a solution that you like. What What form was that taking for you? Like, were you doing graphic design or painting or music? Painting mostly. Painting, canvas, acrylic, oil paints, you know, that sort of thing. We were early adop adopters of, of the Macintosh, or I, I don't know if it's how early that is, but it's actually sitting right next to me. It's a Macintosh classic that I was the first oh. computer we had um, in our house. At some point in my teenage years, I also started writing. So words, 
were always fascinating to me. Um, and then early on, obviously, you know, handwritten, and then with the introduction of the computer, um, you know, typography and in its very rudimentary form. So printing things out and then using those in other pieces of artwork was mm. always su- super interesting to me. So in that sense, I really started to kind of diverge from the kind of work that my mother did, um, which was more abstract, color-based, she started to use a lot of pigments and wax and sort of like in a Mark Rothko kind of vibe. And then I started using, you know, imagery, photography, typography, again, in very sort of rudimentary ways, right? I would, you know, scan things, print them out, and then um, find ways to like transfer them to a canvas in some shape or form, and then to start playing around with those kind of things. So that was kind of how I got into that aspect. And then this was probably when I was 17, 18, when we graduated from high school. You have a yearbook here, right? We don't have yearbooks per se, but what we did was sort of like a graduation newspaper. You know, there'd be people would be writing, graduates would be writing articles about certain teachers or certain classes or just kind of their experiences. And you'd have class photos and things like that. So um, I ended up volunteering to design this with a friend of mine and her father was a graphic designer. And so we spent a lot of time scanning and writing and, you know, Photoshopping Um, that, and that was sort of my first introduction to that world. And her father was, as I said, a graphic designer and super supportive and just a really kind human being. So that was my introduction to this world. I love that. That does sound like a pretty formative and foundational experience for you. Yes, for sure. 100%. And I loved it. Did that inform your decision to study graphic design or walk me through your decision to move to the U.S. and go to Art Center? So a decision might be um, a bit of an overstatement. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So this is where we get back to the sort of general sort of framework of, of, of Switzerland. I did an exchange year when I was 17. I did an exchange year in, in California and I spent a year there and I went back to Switzerland, finished my high school diploma and had absolutely no intention of doing anything with graphic design or anything visual in any shape or form. What happened was my father came back from a surgical conference and mentioned that he'd run into a friend of his whose daughter started at a school called Art Center in in Europe. So Art Center had a campus in Switzerland at the time. It was sort of a sister campus. So Art Center Pasadena and Art Center Europe. It was a private school, so it wasn't really on the on the radar. I was supposed to go and study economics. And that summer after he came home, I just had this sort of epiphany of like, I, I want to try this. Uh, I spent a summer putting on to putting together a portfolio, went to the French speaking part of Switzerland, dropped it off. And, uh, you know, a little bit later, I got accepted. So in that sense, again, I don't know if it was a decision more than an imp- or an impulse more. The way I ended up in Pasadena is that after first the first two terms at Art Center Switzerland, they closed that campus down. And we were actually presented with two options. You can either go to Pasadena or you can 
go somewhere else. <laughs> so because I had already lived in California for a year, I ended up going to Pasadena. So California was not a foreign concept to you at this point. But the impulse to go to Art Center was sort of driven by it being local, convenient, and an, and an epiphany. And then I also read that a an encounter with the Swiss military service had something to do. <laughs> I was researching you and I was like, I need to ask about that. because I don't, that doesn't make sense to my American brain. <laughs> okay. So we are required, you know, at age 19 or 20, you have to do four months of basic training in the Swiss military. That's what I did. It was formative in the sense that it frightened me. So a lot of things sort of crystallized in my brain. I, I realized how many bad things can happen when you put a lot of human beings in close proximity, tell them to wear the same thing, and communicate a belief system to them. The reason that sort of, let's say, encouraged me to uh, leave Switzerland on a more permanent basis is that you're supposed to be going back every, I think, every other year for a couple of weeks. And after those first four months, I literally said, I can't ever do this again. It solidified my pacifist beliefs, and I never wanted to put on that uniform ever again. So when the opportunity presented itself to go to Art Center in California and then later to, um, to move to New York, that was definitely in the very back of my mind. I did not want to go back and put on that uniform again. And I can see as somebody with an extra HD sensor that that would be a kind of uncomfortable, constant input. It was a really, really uncomfortable, unpleasant situation. And it was very, very, very hard. And I, and, and listen, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. My grandfather was an officer, like a, in the, in the army. So, on a professional basis, like that was his job. And then my, my, my father too was an officer. In that sense, I, I wanted to experience it. I feel like you can't judge something until you've actually either done it or seen it or experienced it in some shape or form. So that's why I wanted to go. I actually wanted to go there. There's more, my brothers didn't, there's more ways to, to sort of substitute that military service with um, social services these days. So there probably would have been a way for me to get out of it. However, I did not want to do that. I wanted to experience it in order to judge it for myself. So I'm, I'm glad I did it. I sense there's no disrespect in your voice. It's just personally, it was not a, not a fit for you and for, for a number of reasons, but it, you know, not all people are cut out for the same things. So, and I also really liked what you said, and I really have a lot of respect for this idea that you really can't judge something until you've experienced it for yourself or have a little bit more of a sense of, actually all that's involved to assume that you know what's what's involved in something is i think where we get off track a lot of times is we make decisions based on assumptions instead of actual experience exactly and i think that we actually have a sort of saying at, at work too where it's like our process is is based on um, information and not assumptions i, I don't know if and how it, it, it this sort of applies to 
you know, the general cultural environment that we live in. But I do feel like if we had a little bit more empathy and tried to understand somebody else's point of view, rather than making snap judgments and assumptions about other people's worldview, I think we might be a little better off or it may be a little more, a little less contentious, you know, a little less conflict based, the sort of conversation that we seem to be having in the public. It also means that people would have to be more tolerant of people not fitting cleanly into labels and boxes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. 
ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. So I'm assuming Art Center was a good experience for you, even though you felt the sort of interior guilt of not being with your family as your family was kind of enduring some fracture. Yes, it was. I absolutely loved it. It was not easy in the sense that, you know, even there I was coming up a little bit, a little bit against the sort of structures of what was expected of me. Like I wanted to take film classes and I wanted to take, you know, classes that didn't fit neatly into the communication design curriculum. So I was having to fight a little bit and to experience some of these other tracks that I thought were super interesting. So there was a bit of frustration with that, but the work itself, I absolutely loved. It was, uh, I definitely felt like I I had found my calling I mean, and doesn't that feel good when you can sink into something, even though it's incredibly difficult and you can sense that you're growing. So you're experiencing like a deep learning curve and growing pains all at the same time. But there's something resonating in your soul. That's like, I'm, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, 100%. I mean, I don't think there's a feeling like it. This was in 1994, I think. So computers were still in sort of like the power Mac phase, you know, the like gray box. I'm dating myself a little bit now, but I'm happy to do it just to sort of say that there was a sort of an affinity, if not love for this tool, you know, that was still, you know, a little new in the, in in our worlds, you know, but there was something about that. I never and I would still say I'm, I'm not a good artist, meaning like my brother's an artist and my brother, his figure drawings are incredible. Like I can't like draw very well, but this tool allowed me to sort of access um, this place, you know, combines imagery and typography and then ultimately motion, you know, in a way that didn't think was possible. Like I didn't know that was a thing. 
Well, I think that you sound to me like a systems thinker. And on some level, you were identifying with the Power Mac. Uh, 100%. No question about it. I'm very much a systems thinker now, right? That's what kind of branding is for me too, right? You kind of think of like these systems and how like the essence of something and its visual expression, how it manifests itself across all these different touch points. All the different ways you can communicate it to people who are per- perceive it, you know, f- through different filters of their own. Yeah. Absolutely. So it sounds like Art Center was a really like growth-oriented phase for you. And then you, seems to me like you moved to New York City and not too long after founded Loyal Casper, the branding agency that you're still working with. So can you kind of connect those dots and talk to me about the work you have done at Loyal Casper in terms of like pivotal projects that have informed your trajectory? This is going to sound a bit like some random kind of coincidences, right? But that's life, right? I guess. Yeah. So um, <laughs> between my last two terms at Art Center, the term before I graduated, I came to New York for a week and I met my mom here. She flew in from Switzerland. We spent a week here together in uh, more or less harmony. But I, I, It's pretty good for a visit from mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I put together a little portfolio and that I sort of had with me with the intention of seeing if I could find some, you know, people to talk to. I ended up at Rizzoli. Do you remember Rizzoli bookstores in New York? There was one on West Broadway in spring or something. So I find myself um, in the art slash graphic design section and I pick up this book. It had a metal case. I'd never seen anything like it. And I flip through it. I'm like, wow, this is where I want to work. I don't know if you've heard of the um, company uh, called Attic. So it was an English design company started in Huddersfield, north of England, expanded to London, and then opened the New York office um, literally a couple of years before I had gone to New York. I look on the back of the book and it literally says, you know, their office is like a couple blocks down on West Broadway. I'm like, all right, I'm going there. So I walk in there, I get my, I have my little portfolio. I don't know how I managed the nerve to get the nerve um, to do this, right? Because I have a good amount of social anxiety. So that's not usually something I would, I would do, but I was just so inspired by that work. I walked in there, dropped off my portfolio, picked it up, went back to Los Angeles and sent a thank you card to the office manager. And um, she kept the card and called me um, after I graduated. And so, you know, wanted to see if I wanted to come and interview. So that's how I ended up there. Oh, I love it. I love when the universe and your own inspiration just grips you enough that you follow through on an, on an idea. You don't let fear take over. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and you know what? Like, I don't know if I would do that at this point in my career. I was so fearless at the time. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. There are these two. Now I've never, I've never like sort of laid this out for myself in this kind of way. But you're absolutely right. These two sort of pivotal moments were, you know, the realization that graphic design and art center were a thing. And I literally just jumped into it. And the same thing here, right? Whereas like, that's what I want. And the universe just sort of responded, I suppose, you know, which is pretty amazing. 
Yeah. Or you just do it before you have a chance to get in your own way and talk yourself out of it. 100% before you start thinking, you yeah. know? Yeah. Before, you, before your brain tells you all the th reasons why you shouldn't. You know, I think maybe also working in your favor at the time was possibly a little bit of confidence. I'm assuming you did well at Art Center and were feeling in your groove. And then a lot of naivete, like not even knowing like what you were actually doing. <laughs> so it, you didn't know what you didn't know. <laughs> no question about it. Because as it turns out, you know, once I once I took the job and I moved to New York, I studied graphic design with very little um, motion experience. There were a couple of motion classes and I get to Attic. This was the late, late 90s in New York. And it felt to me like the sort of motion graphics boom. Television stations were getting more adventurous with, um, you know, their on-air graphics where they would hire this, you know, at that point, little known English graphic design company to like, make stuff for them that moved basically. And it was just sort of, they kind of threw everybody into this motion world and it was kind of like sink or swim. And that was sort of my next epiphany where it's like, wow, this is incredible. I can use graphic design. I can use my interest in storytelling and filmmaking and I can use typography and words and bring all this stuff together. And you can tell a story in 10 seconds. Well, and in telling a story in 10 seconds, there's also an incredible amount of distillation. I think this is probably leading into your branding work, but like being able to understand what is important to get across in 10 seconds. And how do I do that in a way that is also carries with it enough visual impact and emotional resonance that it will be heard, it will be digested. You're absolutely right. I'm kind of stunned that you're able to draw all these things out of me because I feel like I think quite a bit about my work and my place in the world, but I hadn't really thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I always say that, you know, there's still a three act structure in 10 seconds, right? So you're still telling a, a, a film, basically you have set up development and conclusion, but you're absolutely right. There's, there's so many things that you have to leave out and you have to distill everything basically down to its essence. And that 100% leads to then ultimately the branding work that we've been doing right so and you're also right because we didn't stay we didn't start out as a branding agency we started out i, I met my friend david um at attic and he was a producer there we started writing screenplays on the side um and we decided that we wanted to write more screenplays and do less design work so after i had left my job he was still working there but we basically you know spent hours in coffee shops and at each other's houses writing screenplays. And then we basically, one day was like, you know what, maybe we should try to do a little bit of graphic design on the side. So that's when the idea came up of like, okay, let's just rent a couple of desks, um, you know, somewhere we'll do a little bit of graphic design and we'll keep writing. That was the start. And what we did back then was mostly sort of graphic design packages for um, VH1, MTV, the sort of Viacom, you know, universe that we still <laughs> work with to this day, but it was really mostly, you know, small kind of graphic design packages for shows, um, you know, some logo work. And again, the motion work, distilling something down to five seconds, 10 seconds, ultimately led to, you know, this kind of obsession with clarity and distillation down to 
the sort of essence of, of something and, and finding the visual expression for it. So I think you're absolutely right. Fascinating. Okay, so you founded Loyal Casper with David in 2003. So you've been at it for a while. How has the studio agency production company, how has it evolved? And is there a project you can illustrate for us that kind of paints the picture of your collaboration with David or how or how you both approach the work or even something that broke through a personal boundary for you and informed who you are today? So David was a producer at Attic. I was a designer. So and I think from the very beginning, we were sort of drawn to each other because I feel like in many ways we probably f- saw a sort of complementary being in the other one. And producers are system thinkers as well. So I think you probably also had a respect for the way that you both can process a lot of moving parts. 100%. So in that sense, you know, from the very beginning, even though that I would be physically, you know, designing elements and designing specific, whether it's style frames or posters or logos or whatnot, our collaboration was super, super close from the very beginning. Like he would really help me think systematically through projects. What I appreciate most in a great producer and in him specifically is that a, a producer needs to know how to protect the creative process. Hallelujah. Say it one more time for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> a producer's most important job or skill is to know how to protect the creative process. Meaning that I just always knew that he had my back. Like he knows when to keep certain types of information from me, when to um, make sure I have it, when to uh, freak me out with deadlines and when to not do that. (laughs) So, you know, from the beginning, that was just always kind of how we worked. To this day, we just value other people's input, I feel like, you know, so whether it's a producer who has a great idea or it's a junior designer who has a great idea or an office manager who has a great idea that it's just a great idea is a great idea, right? It, there were there were studios, there were situations that I witnessed where definitely there was a sort of an idea hierarchy, right? Of like good ideas could only come from certain positions within a certain structure, which I think was problematic. Yeah, I think it's very limiting, but I think even more than that, it's a it's a tell. It's a tell of insecurity. Like I don't know exactly how to evaluate whether an idea is good, so I'm going to default to this hierarchy. And I think that's kind of a mess. Like if you're in that situation, then you can never truly trust that the good ideas will rise to the top and get the support they deserve. That's exactly it. Like we, we default in other places, right, to where we place our trust in certain positions rather than the ideas or the merits of a person rather than the position. You know what I mean? Yeah. I haven't really spent a lot of time working in office environments. I've always been freelance, let's just say that. But I can imagine a culture that sort of says to people a good idea can come from anywhere is a culture where people want to contribute their best. And that is the best kind of culture I can imagine. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I feel like, you know, at some point, this was probably about five, was it six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So we, we, had, we had an office in, in LA, actually. And uh, both of our offices, I think we were close to 50 people or something. And I think both David and I realized that we really did not like us getting to a size where hierarchy and structure are are more important that we want them to be. You know what I mean? Because at some point... Um, yeah, at some at point the, you sort of need them to keep order, but it doesn't necessarily serve the end. Exactly. And and we really did not like that. So, so we actually made a conscious decision to, we, to close the LA office and we're back down to a much more imaginable size. Um, and it's much, much better. Um, because you're less likely to fall into these tra- traps of, of hierarchy and positions. If it were up to me, we wouldn't have any any name t- any job titles. But I also know that that is can be challenging as well. But I just love the idea of as flat a hierarchy as possible. Yeah, I sense that about you. And in a way, it's almost in conflict with an idea of branding, which is a kind of organizing principle. As, as you've mentioned, it helps people organize themselves. So titles kind of do that too, in, a, in terms of, I don't know, just knowing which boxes of, and buckets of responsibilities fall under my purview and which don't. Absolutely. And, and you are hitting on a sort of, again, kind of an internal conflict that I struggle with a lot of times, because it is our job to kind of articulate and again strip away all the unnecessary to really communicate clearly but what also happens is that process tends to flatten complexity because you need to communicate you have two seconds for somebody to drive by a billboard and see something they like or five seconds you know between you know a commercial on television so you really can only communicate that much and it does flatten complexity and it tends to make a lot of things kind of black and white and we live in a world of gray and that's that's challenging right that's that's really that is sort of internally for me i guess is a little bit of a struggle i resonate with that because i'm also just in my own mental processes, trying to distill things down so that they are digestible is a word that I keep using. And so then I I kind of arrive at this idea that I want it to be digestible, but not the only bite. So how do you make things digestible, but also spark enough curiosity that you'd want to go back and learn more in order to reinvigorate, reanimate that complexity that's underlying the issue or whatever it is that's being distilled down. That's exactly it. How, you know, it, it's a tease in many ways, right? Can you inspire somebody, yes, to want to learn a little bit more or dig a little bit deeper and come back for the second bite? I mean, I think you are good at this because I've had the chance to peruse your book, which is coming out in July of 2022, somewhere, yes, The Search for Belonging in a World Shaped by Brands. And... I'll start by saying, I, I mean, I have a, a good sense of what branding and marketing is, and I wasn't really interested in diving into a deep treatise on brands. But your book isn't that. Your book is really more of a deconstruction of 
brands and how they are an organizing principle of society, which then informs our personal identities. And they in both help us make sense of the world and also flatten the complexity of the world. And I just really appreciated how deeply attuned you were to both the benefit and problems that brands present without assessing that they are positive or negative. They just are, and they will be, and we need them to communicate, but we need to be aware of what we're doing with them and how they're influencing us so that they don't become just a dystopic force in the world. That is a fantastic do you want to write something for the back of my book? That's the perfect way to that's the perfect way to distill it. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Let's unpack the book a little bit because uh I I really do think it's fascinating and I want to start from a really basic primer on what brands are. So can you just give me an overview of how we should be thinking of what brands are as opposed to, let's say, marketing or a logo or a company marks? The simplest way to kind of break it down is, and I have that in the book, where I, first of all, a brand is is much more than a logo, right? A logo is sort of like the singular signal that we're um, familiar with. But a brand is much larger than that, right? A brand, I kind of, to me, are sort of has two components. There's the, the visual identity, but there's also the kind of verbal identity and its behavior, meaning there are certain sort of patterns and practices and even rituals that brands that are inherent, inherent to brands that aren't necessarily communicated in the visual identity. For example, the Apple product launches, right? They're kind of like these iconic rituals that you don't get from just looking at the logo, for example. They're sort of practices that are codified, you know, in the brand. And the way a brand, in my mind at least, is different from marketing is a brand shapes and marketing sells. It it sounds to me like you're kind of saying a brand is the character or the personality of the underlying product or service or whatever it represents. So like when I see a photo of Jay-Z, I'm seeing the visual representation of Jay-Z, but my mind extrapolates everything that I know, all the contextual information I know about Jay-Z, about who he is, what he does, who he's married to, how he acts, what's important to him. That all comes to mind just when I see the visual representation. It sounds to me like you're saying a brand is that contextual character that informs how a company behaves. 100%. I really appreciate that distinction because I also, you know, when you talked about how brands influence the formation of our personal identities, at first I was a little bit, you know, like, no, they don't. I, I am who I am. And then I realized, no, as you grow and mature in a soup, let's say, in an environment, brands are so prevalent that they do seep into our our cultural consciousness. And as we seek to figure out who we are and express who we are to the public, brands are almost like handles, handles that we can hold on to that have a, a sense of shared reality that we can say, 
you know, when I was growing up, I liked punk rock. So certain bands were my brands that I identified my character with. And, and it meant something about me. And I see that we all need to sort of reach for these handles that other people understand too, that have a shared cultural context so that we can express who we are. And that's really meta <laughs> how, how brands are able to kind of be a part of our subconscious. They almost turn into a shorthand. When you talk about punk rock, right? Again, punk rock is a label, or if you want, it's, let's say it's, it, it's a brand, if you will, that has a lot of sub brands within it, right? All the different punk rock bands, there's the different fashion labels that are associated with those, you know, particular brands. There's a certain aesthetic of like DIY poster art, poster art that I think of when I think of that world. Totally. Right? So it, it, it's a shorthand. That's the danger in my opinion, because punk rock is this flat singular label that is so rich and complex underneath, you know? Yeah. A lot of times we don't have the the time or are unwilling to unpack that complexity. But we need the simplicity, right? We need the simple handle, the simple shorthand of like, I like punk rock, you like punk rock, so maybe we should, you know, punk rock together. Like we need <laughs> Maybe that. we have something in common. Maybe there's something we can talk about if we ended up on a bus together for a while. Exactly, exactly. It, and I, f- I find that really amazing. And again, it isn't just, right, like punk rock by itself is not like a product somebody's trying to sell necessarily, but it has still turned into this kind of like iconic term that the way I look at it almost becomes a brand in in and of itself. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mm-hmm. 
It's interesting you mentioned the sub-brands because there are, you know, it means, punk rock means different things to different people depending on which era of punk rock you're talking about, which geographical location, whether it's you identify with the rebellious, anti-establishment nature of it, or whether you identify with the DIY of it, you know, so it it doesn't necessarily really explain anything. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it does help people align. Absolutely. And I think I don't want to get too political on this, right? But that's that's part of the, the enormous power of brands, but also the real danger. Because I feel like brands mean different things to different people. And the best brands are like an open vessel for people to project their own desires and you know dreams and whatever else into those. The strength of Make America Great Again, for example is that it's so open to interpretation, right? Anybody can sort of project what they want into it, but it's such a like flat and simple term. The entire complexity is stripped out of it. At the same time, everybody can kind of project what they want into it. And that's incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous, I think. Yeah, so let's talk about that. The danger seems kind of obvious, but you posit that the tools of branding have the capacity to help us recover from our recent dystopian trajectory as equally as it has the power to cause it. You tell me what the danger of branding is, but I think it is this flattening, this reductiveness, this this black and white thinking that gets applied to everything. And then it almost kind of emboldens people to deactivate their own critical thinking and separates us all into... First of all, separate camps. But then the other, the other problem is lack of a shared reality. When brands mean different things to different people, and yet we operate as though we're understanding each other when we're not. No, exactly. I think that's, that's really, really challenging. And I yeah. actually don't know if I have necessarily an answer to it other than. I mean, other people call it like media literacy. I almost want to call it like a, a, a brand literacy, meaning understanding that this is what happens by necessity in a world where everybody is fighting for everybody else's attention, where brands are fighting for our attention like they never have before. And you're constantly being bombarded with information, whether it's you know, breaking news alerts on your phone or the latest podcasts you should be listening to or the latest books you should be buying. You know what I mean? We need the simplicity because we physically cannot handle complexity if everything was super complex. So we need that shorthand. But you're exactly exactly right. If these signals, right, if these sort of visual sound bites that we're getting if those mean different things to different people, then how are we talking the same language? How are we actually achieving some sort of resolution? If the complexity is only visible, you know, sort of when we look past the initial soundbite, right? That sort of signal, the flare that is being sent by brands in our daily lives. If that's only visible... If we invest time and energy to dig a little bit deeper, and if that complexity 
means different things to different people. Like you said, right? For you, the image of Jay-Z brings up so many other things, not way beyond his music, right? Right, right. For, for, for me, it may bring up his involvement in bringing, bringing the Brooklyn Nets to Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like whatever else. But are we then still talking about the same thing when we talk about Jay-Z? Or how do we then need to, you know, sort of establish the kind of the similar footing when we're unpacking the complexity? I don't know. It gets really complicated. I think you do know because I, because you said it. Like, we've created all of these platforms where everyone is shouting, but nobody's listening. And I think... I wholeheartedly believe that we have a crisis of non-listening and society and listening, actually listening to learn, not just listening to rebut or, you know, one up somebody with something funnier or better is how we get at what that complexity is. And of course, asking the questions, right? The questions that come from a very non-judgmental place. Like, I'm just trying to understand, like, what's your sense of this? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I do think there's kind of a magic in a brand that you can trust because you do somehow sense that they value their that, that trust with the public more than anything else. They value it more than selling whatever it is they're selling? I think great brands can only be built on trust and truth, right? If you're not truthful in how you represent yourself out in the public, it won't resonate with people, right? Regardless of whether whether, whether you're selling sneakers or whether you're selling a worldview. An we used to call that being a poser. <laughs> if you're a yeah, poser. You're, abso- you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think, aren't we all like looking for these kind of brands that we can sort of put our trust in? It is so um, challenging to, you know, to hear the sort of real voices amongst all the noise that you just mentioned, right? Everybody is shouting and nobody is listening. Super challenging. And then there's this deceptive layer. I think... There are a lot of people who are savvy to the fact that marketers understand the trust component and will actually go to out of their way to camouflage certain brand behaviors or contexts in order to maintain trust, but they're sort of maintaining trust deceptively. And so now we have this culture of everybody just being so suspicious. You're absolutely right. You, you have a branding agency and you value truth and trust. Doesn't that just irritate you <laughs> that people are contaminating the space that you hold so dear <laughs> with this performative trust building? I mean, it's really, really hard. But you got to keep fighting the good fight. You have to. Because if, if everything gets corrupted and polluted... We've got no clean water to drink. I love that. I love that analogy. I think I have something in the book or like we've as a society sort of surrendered the public square to brands, but we should be able to like ask them to pick up the trash that they leave behind yes. and like clean it up, right? Clean yes. it up. 
Yes. Put stuff, put stuff in the garbage, put it in the recycling, put, you know, where it belongs and don't just like leave it um, with like mental trash. Oh my God. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Be responsible for the waste byproducts of what it is you're doing and producing. And that requires a psychological assessment of the ways that you're impacting society and what your responsibility is there. Thank you. Preach it. And I think we're all suffering at the end, you know? Pick up the trash and leave some clean water behind, please. Yes. So this has been, I want to say, enjoyable, but it's all because it's been enjoyable in that way that challenging conversations are. And I don't mean you and I were challenging each other because we were kind of agreeing with each other the whole time. But I do think it can be a little uncomfortable to peel back the onion and look at the layers of society and how it's all made up. And I just appreciate how you've done that in such a such an honest and truthful way in your book. So thank you for sharing your story with me, Bayat. Thank you, Amy, so much. I really appreciated your thoughtful and insightful and kind questions. Thank you for helping me understand myself better. Thanks for listening. To see images of Bayat, his work, and learn more about him, read our show post. Click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we love it when you take the extra step to rate and review. It really does help us out. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, Production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 